there are so many moving parts. You've got all those people on the stage. You've got the people in the orchestra. It could sound awful. It was done improperly. Complex medicine is much more like opera than it is like jazz. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Jeff Goldsmith, futurist, consultant, and author riffing on the state of the healthcare industry. Jeff is someone that I've turned to for years in my writing and my research. His book with Tim Jost, Healthcare 2020, is due next year. It's a guide to what's coming next for the industry. I sat down with Jeff to talk about where the industry is going, how Washington is influencing what's happening around the country, and the parts of the industry that he sees as worthy of betting on in the future. You'll hear that conversation in a moment. And stay tuned until the end of Pulse Check this week. You'll hear an excerpt from Politico Money, a podcast from Ben White about Wall Street, Washington, and beyond. Just a reminder, you can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondatpolitico.com. And please rate us, review us, share this podcast. That's how we get new listeners. And now, here's Jeff Goldsmith. What does a futurist do? How does your day-to-day work? Well, I'm lucky enough not to have a real job. So my day involves maybe six hours worth of reading online and gossiping with an absolutely awesome, very strategically placed gossip network that pretty much is spread across the industry. I'm fascinated by both the, the biomedical science underlying medicine and the, and the technology So I've got friends that know a heck of a lot more about those things than I do that I'm able to ask stupid questions about. That's what I do. Who's in your gossip network? Oh, my God. I mean, it's far too long a list. I mean, it's just, you know, there's there's hundreds of people. I I couldn't really. So these are policymakers, hospital executives, researchers. Scientists, um, private equity folks. Um, I have a lot of friends in private equity and venture capital that I've known for years. And. You know, what, what's interesting about them is that they see all this deal flow. And so I get calls from them about, you know, is this real? Is it something, you know, is it something with legs? Is it something we ought to put our money into? So it's a pretty broad-based uh, network. When you're talking to people outside of Washington about healthcare, what do they know about the system that we forget being trapped inside the Beltway? Well, I mean, the sad thing is that this, this field is incredibly siloed. So the guys in pharma and biotech know absolutely nothing about what's going on in um, general health policy or in Congress or whatever other than that which affects their specific industry. So each one of them, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the wise man and the elephant, you know, the, the, they each see a piece of the elephant, but they don't see the whole elephant. And that's part of what I do is that I'm, you know, I want to see the whole elephant. Like a panopticon, you get to see all the different angles. I guess going back to what what it means to be a futurist, isn't the joke about being a futurist that if you predict the future long enough, eventually it comes true? Well, you know, I think William Gibson was the guy that said um, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So that's like the fun part is that you can look at a whole range of stuff and the hard part of, of what I do is like, well, okay, is this something that's going to survive the crash into the slough of despond that Gartner talks about, you know, from the peak of inflated expectations to, you know, basically a laughing stock? Is it something that's going to emerge from the slough of despond? And how long is it going to take? Those are the two tricky things. 
Well, one thing that you've predicted in the past, or you wrote a book about 30 years ago, The End of Hospitals. Right. Here we are today. <clears throat> hospitals persist, though have, have changed somewhat. How do you think your original prediction stacked up against what came to pass in the past number of years? Well, what I said in, in the book, Can Hospitals Survive?, which was like originally a, a Harvard Business Review article, wasn't that hospitals were going to go away. It was just that great big chunks of what hospitals did were going to move into physician offices, into freestanding settings. And then unless hospitals fundamentally redefined their business to incorporate those things, they were going to have a problem. And I, I predicted in 1980 a significant decline in inpatient hospital use. And that's occurred. You know, we're, we have 30 percent fewer inpatients today than we did in 1980 with 100 million more people. So I think that was like a pretty good forecast. And what's interesting about that dynamic is it's still going on. Inpatient use is falling right now despite, you know, 3 million plus baby boomers enrolling in Medicare every year. Inpatient use is falling and uh, outpatient use isn't growing at the rate that people expect. So it's you know, what tipped me off in 1980 was that I saw use rates falling in the late 70s, and I couldn't figure out why. And those use rate declines were enough to offset the growth in population, and that was the basis for the forecast. That's the kind of stuff I do. Let me re-ask the question that you asked all those years ago. Can hospitals survive? Well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a trillion-dollar industry, so and every one of us is going to need to use it when I talk to uh, when I talk to medical staffs and boards, I'm like, you know, you are trustees of and keepers of an inst- a community institution, but the part you don't necessarily focus on is you're going to be in one of these places before the end of your life, and how's that going to go? So you have a selfish reason to want these places to thrive and to grow and to change, that as in a way, nothing to do with your community obligation about, you know, making sure that these assets are employed in a, in a productive way. Well, when you say that to them, how do they respond? Do they say, I'll never be in a hospital, I'll be getting home health care? A surprising number of them nod sagely and say, yeah, I was just in there last week. And of course, the irony of my saying that is like, I've been in this field for more than 40 years. It was 40 years of not using the system. And then like starting in February of 15, I had five major surgeries in 29 months. And it was like, oh, my God. And it was really interesting. It was – you know, the most interesting thing was was how much hope it gave me what I saw and felt. I was only four of the people who – to three of the people who touched me were over the age of 40. So you're hopeful because the workforce is young. What about the processes around you and the experience you had? That was the part that was hopeful. It wasn't that they're young. Of course, they're going to be young because my generation of caregivers and managers are going to go away here shortly. Um, it was how they work together. And the idea that you know, getting people to work as teams um, in my you – know, what I've been talking about this year in part is like the huge cultural shift that needs to happen. Um, I show a picture of Miles Davis – you know, the brilliant jazz trumpeter. And I say, this was how my generation of clinicians and managers was trained as medicine was a succession of solos. And virtuosos. Yeah, and you kind of wanted to elbow the other guys off the, off out of the limelight so you could do your thing. That's not the way these young people worked at all. And I, and I so like my successor to that model, that, you know, jazz uh, improvised uh, solo performance thing was opera. 
because that's how I think a lot of medicine is going to work for us as we get older. It's, it's just a bunch of people on the stage and they have to work together because what they do is so complicated that if they don't all – if they don't follow the libretto, right, you end up with something that doesn't work very well. So well, it's just, funny. Just one problem. I hate opera. Well, I do too, OK? Alt country, you know, bluegrass, those are my main musical things. I don't like opera either, but it's beautiful. I mean and, – and it is – there are so many moving parts. You've got all those people on the stage. You've got the people in the orchestra. It could sound awful. It was done improperly. Complex medicine is much more like opera than it is like jazz. And the thing that was cool about these young people was they were comfortable with that complexity and they worked together as teams just flawlessly. It was really cool. I feel like there's probably some universe where there's a war of healthcare metaphors of cowboys and pit crews and, <laughs> and Miles Davis. I, I talked to you for some of my stories over the years, including a recent story I did. I think we ended up calling it uh, a nation of McHospitals, right. question mark, about the trend toward consolidation right. at big health systems, how it hasn't really paid off. I got a lot of pushback. The American Hospital Association said that mergers lead to all kinds they of – They certainly did. Shame on you, Daniel. Well, shame on shame on me now if, if you agree with that. Did, is, is AHA right that mergers are good for the system, that they have led to all of these quantifiable benefits? Well, I'm going to get myself in trouble by what I'm about to say. But I think that the, the consolidation in the industry is, has produced very few measurable societal benefits. Um, it's um, – it really is – I mean, you know, the bankers and the guys that promote the deals that bring these, uh, you know, hospital systems together, right, you know, blather on about economies of scale and, you know, you know, gobby gobby. If there were economies of scale in this industry, why does the overhead in these entities go up, not down when they merge? I mean, that to me is a fundamental test. These places aren't cheaper. They're not producing measurable benefits for the communities by merging. It is totally about leverage and, you know, and the antitrust folks came very late to this game. They got their butts kicked for 20 years trying to stop deals that were clearly anti-competitive and, you know, some of these organizations function at a very high level and are really focusing on producing values. A lot more of them are just basically conglomerates that were formed to leverage the major commercial insurers and Blue Cross in their markets. I don't think there's any question about it. We didn't get into it as much in my story, but you wrote about this for HBR. We talked about it on, on the phone. The qualities of successful health systems, scale and, and leverage aside, what do you see those as being? Let me tell you, Dan, this is one area where I just feel so frustrated because and, – and you know, one of my mentors in, in this business was Peter Drucker. Peter was a close friend for most of the last 15 years of, uh, of his life and – Drucker's whole thing was management really matters. And it's like scale, leverage, you know, IT investment. If there's nobody at the controls making intelligent decisions about what people do, it doesn't make any difference at all. And that's the, the missing ingredient here. It's like the discussion about leadership and judgment, which was Drucker's thing, has disappeared from this field. And when you see institutions that have just flat out excelled I mean, look in this region, you know, you've got Hopkins that just looms over this whole area. It's the best medical center in the world. Penn is close. Those were leadership stories. 
That wasn't about mass scale. It wasn't about Sheikh Zayed giving Hopkins the money to build a hospital. It was about judgment and people promoting both institutional values and really strong leaders that made those places just dominant actors in their markets. I'm guessing that many of our listeners won't know the stories that you are summoning top of, of mind. So right. what is a leadership example from Hopkins or Penn up in Philadelphia that shows how those organizations were well managed in your perspective? Well, well Penn's a great one. Um, you know, um, Penn, Penn got caught up in a lot of um, – of competitive market dynamics with Allegheny during uh, the late 80s and early 90s. Allegheny ultimately went bankrupt. They went bankrupt because they acquired two large teaching hospitals in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, that they couldn't manage. Uh, Penn was under the guidance of a um, a kind of a visionary imperialist uh, 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 CEO – um, who was trying to compete in acquiring physician practices and buying up hospitals and all the rest of it and almost bankrupted the institution. Uh, Penn recruited um, uh, a colleague and friend of mine named Ralph Muller to run the place and uh, his uh, academic uh, superior, Arthur Rubenstein. The two of them worked together incredibly well. In a lot of academic health centers, there's tension between the chief academic officer and the chief administrative officers. These guys weren't buddies, but they worked together really closely. Um, Penn just – they made a succession of investment decisions in where their faculty was going to go. Uh, Ralph went way off the reservation and put hundreds of millions of dollars into developing Penn's clinical enterprise and its, and its research operation and it has just paid off enormous uh, benefits Ralph is, you know, I've known Ralph for 30 years. He's a peer and friend. That's a great example. A less visible national example would be Steve Lipstein, who was one of Ralph's deputies at Chicago that has done very much the same thing at Washington University with BJC. He just announced that he's uh, stepping down next year. Those are a couple of great examples. The leadership stories don't get any ink at all in this field. And it's just tragic. This isn't – this isn't – these aren't machines. They're complex human enterprises. Why don't you think that they don't get ink? Is it because of something in the healthcare field and what is prized and, and maybe less focus on administrators to begin with? And, and maybe there should be less focus on administration and more focus on outcomes. Well, you know, Dan, that's a, that's a really interesting question and, and one I'm not sure I can answer. I, I have a – I have a whole bunch of articles in my computer that never get finished. One of them – I have that problem too. One yeah. of them is about how we need a good deal less Deming and a lot more Drucker in this field right now because Drucker was about leadership, culture, values. Those were the things that made corporations into significant social institutions. We're right now at peak Deming. We're, we're focused obsessively in these institutions on metrics, on financial performance, on incentives. And Drucker would say, you know, well, fine, you know, they at least shouldn't be toxic to an institution or a community, but they're not the main event. They're not what drives these places. And I am a Drucker person, not a Deming person. I think we need more Drucker and less Deming right now. One last question about this McHospital story. You gave me a memorable quote. Uh, <laughs> let, let me read it. I certainly quote, did. There, there are these testosterone-driven waves of deal-making, and then there are waves of post-coital regret that, that follow. Some folks on Twitter took note of that comment. Or, or, do you have any post-coital 
any post-quotal <laughs> regret for, for saying that to me. No, because that's exactly the way it, it works. You know, this field is um, is what's depressing about it as a futurist is someone who has a long, you know, a, a five to 20 year time horizon is these these waves of fads and people get caught up in them. And a lot of those fads are around consolidation, system building. Part of the reason I'm skeptical about all that stuff is that I spent 15 years at the beginning of my career trying to do it. And it's really hard. Trying to do it as an advisor? As someone yeah, as, as, as a strategist. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I began my career in consulting in the earlier mid-80s. And the fundamental question that a lot of my clients were asking is, what the hell do we do about Kaiser? They're taking away our patients. You know, it looks like the policy community wants to foster this type of organization. We can't do it the way we're organized. How do we, how do we get ourselves positioned to, you know, to offer a comprehensive product at risk? So, I mean, that's an issue that's been worrying me since like 1982. And it is so hard. It is so hard. And there's so much. Um, I wrote a little piece about this last year about the terroir effects, the idea that there's like ecological conditions that enable certain forms of healthcare organization to prosper. And people don't see those. They don't see them as constraints. So why isn't Kaiser in New York? Why isn't it in Boston? Why isn't it in Lincoln, Nebraska? Why well, there's isn't some, it? Why well, there's, isn't it? Because you, know, you, you can't grow champagne grapes in Nebraska, dude. You can't, you know, the, the conditions aren't present. You need big unionized, uh, you need big union, unionized employers. You need uh, receptivity to large-scale group practice. Uh, you need an enlightened benefits community. You need a whole bunch of things that if they're not there, there's no market for an integrated enterprise. And I learned that through bitter personal experience in trying to replicate that model in 15 or 20 communities. And it only worked in a couple of them. You've talked about the arc of history in healthcare and how you've seen things rise and, <laughs> oh rise and fall. Where are we when it comes to policymaking and how the industry is reacting to what's coming out of Washington? Is there is there an understanding of what the Trump White House and Trump successor are, are doing? Are there still big questions out in the field about what Washington's direction will be? Because we have questions here, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I had I spoke to six state hospital associations this year. Um, that's an unusually large number. And a lot of the reason why the execs of those associations brought me in was to wake their membership up. This field reacted to the whole Trump phenomenon and to repeal and replace. I mean, I get carried away with metaphors like a bunch of guys standing around at a barbecue and this 12-foot cobra crawls out of the crawls out of the tall grass into the middle of them and they just froze. You know, the people here in Washington were very active, but the people in the field were completely frozen. You'd have expected, given the magnitude of the threat, that a trillion dollars of health funding could go away with a simple act of Congress this spring or summer. You'd have expected Braveheart, right? You know, hold, right? You know, here they come. You know, we got our spears. Right, no. It's more like Eeyore. I don't know. I'm not sure. Oh, boy. This could be really bad. And I, I just, just want listeners to know I was not doing the Eeyore impression. No, that's now. me. Yeah. That was me. But that's what it was like. It was just they were just paralyzed. And it was like 
they didn't realize that it was an existential threat to them because they were going to get blamed. They were the people that were going to have to turn away folks that didn't have health insurance or end, end up being stuck with, with you know, $100,000 and $200,000 bills. They just didn't react. And, it, and it, it was hard for the people. They're a great spokesman for this industry here in Washington. Chip Kahn's brilliant, Bruce Siegel. These guys are really good at what they do. But the grassroots behind them, you know, just – it, it was really scary. Well, this was a question I, I had quite a bit through the healthcare fight. Why weren't there more voices speaking out given so much revenue and, and the direction of the industry, investments that had been made and ACA were at risk? And, and what I got, Jeff, was there was uncertainty around – after the election result, which caught so many people by surprise right. and swept Republicans into power, there was uncertainty about whether it mattered if healthcare executives spoke out and additionally – what would they gain by pushing back against ACA repeal, which at, at times looked unlikely, if not very unlikely, to fail, when there were so many other priorities for the industry? They were worried about spending their capital at the beginning of what could be four years, eight years of Republicans in power. Well, I think they kind of got stuck on the Democratic side of the aisle by buying into ACA in the first place. And I think there was a lot of anger, um, particularly in the House, about you know, how invested these guys were in something that they viewed as almost immoral. So I think, you know, the, the, I think the industry got, even though it isn't a democratic industry, I think it got caught on the D side of the aisle. And there was a lot of fear about, you know, if we fight really hard and these guys actually do get their act together and follow through, we could be significantly harmed and not just by this bill. And, you know, so I think what's you know, when you say they got caught on the side of the aisle, I asked Bernard J. Tyson, the Kaiser mm-hmm. Permanente CEO on this podcast a few weeks ago. He said, not about politics, just about this was the policy to make money. We made these investments. This is the new law of the land. Rubbish. Yeah, I think, you know, Obama's policy managers, and I'm thinking particularly of Rahm Emanuel and, and, uh, and Nancy Ann DeParl here, went directly after the industry. They went after the docs. They went after the hospitals. They went after pharma and signed them up. And, and I think the reason why they got it done was they got, they got firm commitments. That was the problem with Clinton. Clinton didn't realize that people were going to you know, maneuver around them and maybe not support them when the voting came. I think you know, Obama's people were really very tactically savvy and lined them up. So they were absolutely supporters of ACA. You know, they were on the fence. The hospitals were on the fence with Clinton Care, but not with ACA. They were, they were four-star behind it. And I think, you know, I think the uncertainty was, you know, how, how, significant, how significant a force are we really going to be if we fight these guys in what has become increasingly a partisan fight? We could lose and then, and then there are all sorts of consequences beyond repeal or replace that could affect our institutions. I mean, maybe there's other reasons. But, you know, there was a great, there was a great cartoon that, that, that floated around on the Internet um, about some guy mowing his lawn inside a, a fence with a tornado behind him. Oh, I, Do you I don't remember think that? That was, a, that was an actual photo. It was a photo. Yeah. And I used that in my talk. And I was like, okay, guys, you know, <laughs> mowing the lawn. Well, okay, look at the tornado. You know, it was really, uh, it was really scary. And Dan, I, they came darn close. I mean, I One think, away. you know, if yeah, John, yeah. John McCain, John McCain had not been diagnosed with cancer. Maybe he would have been swept along. They came within a vote or two of maiming this industry. 
And we may see a rerun of that in the very near future of, well, of that effort. Well, but it's, you know, <clears throat> what was what was clear enough to me, and again, I don't live here. I, I live in Charlottesville, so I'm a, a ways away, <clears throat> is what they really wanted was the trillion dollars. They wanted to take the trillion dollars out of healthcare funding and put it into the tax cut. Well, so here we are in the tax reform, and what do we discover? Well, they're not going to get a trillion, but they may get four hundred billion. You're talking about the mandate repeal. Oh now. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, and the, no, not the mandate repeal. The the uh, the four percent cut in Medicare that goes along with the um, uh, the pago the pago the pago right. rules. Right. So the industry could lose four percent. You know, three three and a half to four percent of Medicare funding starting in fiscal eighteen. They could lose three or four million insured lives, and they could also lose, which is floating around in there. Um, the ability to have tax-exempt advance refunding of their bonds. So there's three big things that are potentially very harmful to the industry that are in the tax reform bill. And, of course, Trump promised not to cut Medicare. Well, that would be a lie if he signed this bill. He promised not to cut uh, Social Security, and his own budget took almost $80 billion out of disability, which is the last time I looked, part of Social Security, and and a trillion four out of Medicaid. So, I mean, it's pretty clear. These guys are – they make Newt Gingrich look like uh, Mother Teresa. We, we skipped past this really quickly. I just want to explicate it for listeners who might not know. There are pay-go rules that if the deficit is increased, there are going to be commensurate cuts in entitlement programs. Correct. The Senate bill would increase the deficit. That puts Medicare and some other mandatory programs at risk of being cut. Right. There's talk of Republicans and Democrats at the end of the year coming together on a deal to stop that. But there's there's no momentum on either side right now to agree on a deal. Democrats have no incentive to help Republicans pass this tax plan and then try and save Medicare. Obviously, it would be a major political liability yep. if Medicare gets cut. Yep. So, so we shall see on that front. One, one last thing on, on the tax plan, though. You mentioned the things that are at risk for hospitals, including the bond financing, which mm -hmm. hasn't gotten a lot of attention. There is no change to their tax-exempt status, an issue that I've written mm -hmm. about. It's something that has been battled about over the years. You've seen it happen before. Why have hospitals been able, big, technically not-for-profit hospitals, been able to protect their tax-exempt status despite so many questions about what they do to earn it? You know – I mean, I think when you think about it as, as a fiscal issue, it really isn't that much money. I mean, you know, compared to uh, the tax-exempt status of employer benefits, it's probably – that's probably 10x. Oh, absolutely. So I, I just think from a, from a fiscal standpoint, it's way down the list of things that you'd hit if you were trying to pull money out. Um, it's more of a state and local issue, I think, because of yeah, the property is. tax in a city like Boston, where so many yep. institutions are not for profit. And you've seen in uh, you've seen it in a couple of cities. You've seen it in uh, Pittsburgh. You've seen it in Salt Lake City, where local entities kind of look at the you know these huge prosperous entities and you know uh, hospital things and say, hey, you know, why don't why don't, why aren't you guys kicking in? We're having financial problems. So I think there actually is more risk at the state and local level than there is at the federal level. But you know. My recently departed colleague of Reinhardt made a lot of trouble maybe 10 or 15 years ago by saying, you know, why don't we get rid of tax exemption for hospitals, but let them – whether whatever their sponsorship, let them credit back against their tax liability the actual community benefits that they provide. No one ever went the extra mile and said, well, OK, well, if we did that, who would the winners and losers be? Where I came from, you know, more I started my career at the University of Chicago, we would have been a big winner. That would have been way more worth to us 
than it would have been to an organization like Northwestern or, you know, Evanston or whatever. It that served we're in. a wealthier population. Exactly. So that is a very interesting conversation to have. But I, I think the reason why it hasn't surfaced is just, you know, target of opportunity. It isn't that big a target. Another conversation I wished I'd had with Uva. I want to close with a lightning round of sorts. You're a futurist. You look yep. at what's coming. Just a verbal thumbs up or thumbs down, optimistic or pe- pessimistic about several sectors in healthcare. Sure. So insurers, thumbs up, thumbs down. They're at the top of the cycle right now. There's no way on earth that health costs aren't – that their cost trend isn't going to rise and squeeze them on their rates. So I think we are absolutely at the top of the cycle for those guys. They're going to have a very difficult next couple of years. Pharma. Um, lots of luck, guys. Um, I don't have any problem as a policymaker or as a citizen with you know, these guys putting um, uh, big price tags on things. But the things they put big price tags on ought to have societal payoffs commensurate with the price. And that's really been the problem. I mean – all that controversy over Savaldi and Harvoni, I'm like, dude, you cured a dread disease, cured it. How many drugs cure diseases that are priced like Harvoni and Savaldi were? That's the real problem. It's the return on the benefit, not the prices themselves. Physicians. I think the physicians are going to get a real boost from this Trump policy cycle, even with Tom Price gone. Uh, I think the Obama policy cycle was all about submerging physicians in large organizations. It hasn't worked very well. And a lot of those larger organizations are losing like 185 grand a doc on the docs they are employing. So I think um, I think particularly the independent physicians are going to get a boost from this administration. They've already gotten a free pass on MACRA. They've largely been excluded from the MIPS uh, track of MACRA. Hope I'm not getting too wonky here. But I think they're, I think this administration – even with price gone, is going to tilt back towards stocks and try and use the lower cost position of a lot of physician-sponsored enterprises to pressure hospitals. Last one, healthcare consultants. Um, consultants profit from uncertainty. Um, you know, when you kind of know what's coming, whether it's good or bad, uh, institutions kind of muddle along. When there's either a an enormous risk, which I think we're in right now, or uh, an enormous potential upside payoff, um, you know, the the level of uncertainty is what drives consulting spending. When people need speed to results, they hire consultants. When they feel they can muddle along with the staff and talent they have, they, they tend to go their own way. Chaos tends to be profitable. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's not fun to be in chaos. I mean, what you want is for your client to win. That's what I wanted. I mean, it's like, it's why I left consulting is because it was really hard to get them to follow through and to do the things that were going to enable them to dominate their markets. I mean, that was the kind of work I wanted to do. And so often they just wouldn't pull the trigger. Sage wisdom from Jeff Goldsmith, watching this industry for years behind and years to come. Thank you for joining Pulse Check. Dan, it's been a lot of fun. We'll leave you with an excerpt from Ben White's Politico Money podcast. Every Wednesday, Ben brings you smart conversations with the major players in finance, tax, and economics. I think of it as the best look at Wall Street meeting Washington. If you haven't heard Ben's conversation with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin or Senator Schumer, you're missing out. And this week, Ben hosted a reporter roundtable on what's next for tax reform in Congress. 
Please note, their conversation was recorded before Lisa Murkowski came out and said that she supports mandate repeal in the tax reform bill, specifically ACA individual mandate repeal. And now here's Ben talking with Sungmin Kim from Politico about what's next for tax reform. Sungmin, let's go to you and talk about kind of where this whole process stands on Capitol Hill right now. Okay, so the House passed this thing, 227 Republican votes, no Democratic votes. Uh, And now we're going to move to the Senate. When the Senate comes back from Thanksgiving break, they will attempt to pass their version of a tax cut slash reform bill. And it's no slam dunk that they're going to get this thing done. We've seen, obviously, a number of Republican senators raise questions with it. Ron Johnson on the pass-through rate, Susan Collins, uh, maybe Lisa Murkowski on getting rid of the Obamacare individual mandate. Uh, Republicans have questions about the Senate bill before they're willing to vote on it or pass it. So give us a sense from your point of view, like where this stands on Capitol Hill. Is this like a slam dunk that the Senate's going to get it done or not? It's definitely not going to get through in its current form, because as you mentioned, there are so many different pockets of Republican senators, each with their different concerns about the tax bill. You have the deficit hawks led by the likes of Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, John McCain to a certain extent, and even people like Todd Young and James Lankford, who we didn't really have on our radar uh, until more recently, who have raised concerns about basically the price tag of this bill. So that's one group that Republican leadership are dealing with. Um, notable that several in that group tend to be people who don't really care what uh, President Donald Trump has to say. You know, you have Corker and Flake and McCain who haven't been shy and bucking the president in different ways. Now, if if they think the policy is good, they will support it. But my point in saying that is, you know, personal pressure from the president is probably not going to work on those guys. And then you have the healthcare crowd, which is primarily Susan Collins, but also to a certain extent, Lisa Murkowski. Those are the two of the three uh, Republican senators who voted against attempts to repeal Obamacare earlier this year. And adding a repeal of the individual mandate in the health in the tax bill is definitely a complicating factor for these for these two swing Republican votes. And then you have the issue with the pass through businesses, you know, Senator Ron Johnson, and of Wisconsin was the first uh, Republican senator to officially say that he is opposed to the the GOP tax plan as written. Um, he's indicated a willingness to work with leadership to try to get to a yes, but you know I, I think his problems are pretty expensive to fix. Um, so it's it's hard to see how you can kind of make all the puzzle pieces work um, and stay within the the budget parameters of the bill and make fifty senators happy. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Jeff Goldsmith for coming to D.C. My thanks to our producers for making time the day before Thanksgiving. And my thanks to you for listening, as always. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check next week. And I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving.